Disciple Makers. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. We've been working through each track session from our forum last year, and up next is TCM International Institute featuring Jordan Sheets. TCM exists to develop Christian leaders for significant service through higher learning so that every single nation will have effective leaders of disciple-making movements impacting their churches, cultures, and countries for Christ. So make sure to check out tcmi.org when you're done listening to this episode. All right, everybody, let's jump in and hear from Jordan Sheets. Enjoy. All right, it's great to be here, and uh, sorry to some of you who uh, were in the first one. We'll have to do a little bit of retracing, but then we'll move on to the new material. Um, just thinking through a, a few things, at, at the core of, of, of my life, uh, I've been married for 25 years. Uh, my wife Rachel and I, we made a commitment while we were still dating at a missions conference that we would do... Uh, whatever it took, if the Lord opened the door to be involved in making disciples of all nations. And so over these years, the Lord has blessed us with multiple times of basically either selling or giving away our possessions, packing up our five kids with us and moving to multiple places where we receive other people's hand-me-downs and furniture and other things. And oftentimes what we are given would be better than anything we could have gotten on our own. And we're so incredibly thankful for that privilege and that the Lord has opened the door. Uh, one thing that should be said is um, in relation to my family, uh, five kids, but uh, one of them has gone to be with the Lord. She passed away uh, just a month and a short, uh, a day short of uh, 18 years and one month, and uh, she was also severely handicapped as well, too. And uh, the crazy thing to us was when we were dating, we thought that the Lord would send us uh, into the Arabic-speaking world, and we weren't exactly sure which country that was going to be because you have lots of countries to choose from, and so we were kind of moving that direction. Our daughter was born, but through a series of circumstances, we had already been thinking through what the Lord might have for us in the future. And we had been asked to come in and lead a, uh, a youth portion of a program for missionaries in Europe. We had flown into Austria, had driven through the Alps. It was really rough. Uh, we camped actually on a lake in the Alps and the water was warm and crystal clear. It was really pretty spectacular. And um, the Lord really started to move in our heart in that same period of time around uh, when our second daughter was born, redirected our path, and we ended up actually in Austria, serving in a German-speaking church in Baden, Austria. And that's actually where I became aware of TCM. So as far as work goes, I've only been officially uh, a part of TCM in the sense of full-time responsibilities for the last year and a half, but I have been connected in one way or another since moving to Austria in 2001. And uh, the Lord has led us around multiple times, and you know, a part of that has been the issues that we had to deal with in relation to our handicapped daughter. 
So we actually ended up coming home from uh, Austria because of issues that we were facing medically with her. We went out again, uh, spent seven years in the Netherlands, uh, taught at Tyndale Theological Seminary right on the edge of Amsterdam. So I like to say I've lived in postcards uh, in Austria and in the Netherlands. And uh, in that period of time, the Lord brought us home, honestly, because I just didn't want to bury our handicapped daughter in the Netherlands. I wanted to come home and at least do that in the United States and be close to family. We made a commitment to our home church, which I am the only person I know of who has worked in the same church three different times. Um, Usually when people leave a church, they don't come back to it because there are reasons why they're leaving and going somewhere else. I've worked in the same place three times. And just as a way of context, if you're aware of kind of missions issues, um, one of the folks who was from our church is Jim Elliott, uh, who died many years ago uh, in service of the Lord, trying to reach an unreached people group who has now been reached with the gospel in a very significant way. And uh, so we have a long history of, of missionaries who've gone out and served. His older brother, who you wouldn't ever hear about, planted 200 churches uh, in the Amazon basin in Peru and was possibly one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life. So just a little bit of background in there. So the starting point is we think about this issue. We're going to, in this second session, we're, we're going to be zeroing in on uh, Jesus's teaching in relation to prayer. We'll be looking at his example in prayer in the next session, which will be tomorrow uh, morning, for those of you who are interested, at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's an interesting, well, anyway, I had classes at 7.30 in the morning when I was doing my master's, and that was a lot of fun because it was Greek. It was one of my favorite subjects. So, uh, But anyway, it was a joke, uh, by the way. But I do like Greek, though. Um, but we're, we're thinking now in relation to the issue of Jesus' teaching, and it all flows out of the final verses. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 tells us where the whole of the gospel of Matthew is going. First, Jesus reassures his disciples, the 11 remaining disciples, because Judas had betrayed him, was no longer among this group. Jesus comes in and he speaks to this group, and his first words are important because It says that the disciples had a mixed response. They were doubting and they worshiped him. And that doesn't mean they broke out into a round of holy, holy, holy. It means they prostrated themselves before him. When they came to him, they were full of doubt. And at the same time, they worshiped him. Jesus comes in and he speaks to the doubt. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's reassuring them. All these things that have happened in these last hours, understand this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He then goes in and he gives them the responsibility. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Key word in that section, what we call a finite verb, the one that the other participles will be dependent on, is make disciples. It only occurs four times in the New Testament in the sense of this verb. Three times here in the Gospel of Matthew and one time in the book of Acts. Make disciples. Main thing. How do you go about making disciples? Key to it is that first statement, go. A part of making disciples is going. If you want to reach new people, you have to go to them. That's the most basic issue of reaching new people is you go to where they are. If you want to reach new people, you go to the place that they are. 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Second aspect of making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In particular, baptism goes all the way back to the opening discussion in the book. John the Baptist is bringing this baptism that speaks in the sense of repentance. This is an important topic, but repentance at its most basic level is a call to return to the Creator. In the Old Testament, we use the term shuv. Shuv just means to return. Metanoia or metanoeo, the Greek word that's used in conjunction with that, which is absolutely uh, coming out of that, that proclamation of the prophets, is a call to return to the one who has created us. So baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to be obedient to as much as I have commanded you. And know that I'm with you always to the end of the age. And it's in that last part. He doesn't say teach them the basics. Teach them to do a few of the things, you know, pretty well. And then, you know, let them when they want to get to the more advanced stuff. It's a call actually to know everything that Jesus has taught and to teach people to be obedient to everything that he has taught. And in the midst of this, then, is the confidence that the one who has been given all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, that he is with us. And this is the key confidence that we have as Jesus' disciples here in this world. And I have sat in many foreign places, sick, sickness with my own family, handicapped daughter in places, in situations where I thought she was going to die, all of these things, have wondered before the Lord, Lord, what is going to happen? Did you bring us here just so we could see her die and leave us alone? And the confidence has come from the Lord time and again. And one time it, it seemed audible in the room, in a hospital, staring into the, the Vienna woods, the Wienerwald, as we like to say, uh, in Mödling, uh, which is just south of Vienna, and looking out, Lord, did you bring us here just to see her die? You left us alone. He said, I am with you. This is the confidence that we have to the end of this age of making disciples, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is with us. Two key aspects of his teaching are in relation to uh, fasting and prayer. We dealt with prayer or fasting in the last one. This one we're going to deal with prayer. We could even add a third into it, and that would be almsgiving. Jesus expected these three things. It wasn't an issue of if, it was a matter of when. When you do these things, almsgiving, the, the missing one that we're not talking about today, is setting aside money for the purpose of helping those who are in need. That is almsgiving, taking a portion of your finances. This is not what you give to the church. This is taking of your own money and setting it aside and giving it to help. Okay? Uh, we're not talking about that one, but we are somehow, some way. So fasting is one of those, and prayer is what we're going to zero in on right now. The first place that we want to look at is going to be uh, two, or actually, it's going to be the second passage in. So this is Matthew 5, 43 to 48. The first place that the discussion of prayer happens is at this point. This is a famous portion. So you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children 
of your father in that really sounds ominous by the way wow <laughs> of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brothers what more are you doing than others do not even the Gentiles do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the larger section of 520 to 48 unfolds what Jesus means by surpassing righteousness in 520. For I say to you that unless your righteousness might greatly surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of the heavens." And this is an important point as we read through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying there's a base level of righteousness that's practiced among the scribes and the Pharisees. They are looking at the command in and of itself, and they are doing that thing from a physical standpoint. The call and even the prophetic word that has come beforehand is that God is going to do a work in his people. This goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Circumcision of the heart is the first time it occurs is in the book of Deuteronomy. We see it again in the prophets again. And we, of course, we see it occur with Paul where he talks about a circumcision not done by hands, but instead that this is something that God does. And Jesus is giving the sort of teaching to say, now as his disciples, we're not just looking for that base level of righteousness, but instead we're looking to go to the place where there's even a transformation within our hearts, where it's not just an external sort of performance, but instead it's also what's happening within us. He's not lowering the bar. He is actually significantly raising the bar in relation to his disciples. It's not now okay somehow to kill somebody as long as you do it with a genuine heart of love for them or you feel good thoughts about them. Instead, it is, yes, you should not kill, but I'm telling you, you need to go even further and deal with those issues that are boiling up within you. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to a surpassing righteousness that deals even with the things going on in our heart. The, the, the issue, again, as we talked about in the last hour for those who were here, but for those who weren't here, uh, is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, has nothing to do with how movies present it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, with some sinister-looking guy who's going to go and, you know, wreak havoc on a group of people and do terrible stuff. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was a, a way of saying you do not do more to somebody else than what they have done to you. It was actually a limiting form of retribution. So I will tell you, I'm a lifetime martial artist, 33 years. I will tell you when it comes to a street situation, Street justice is this. You hit me once, I hit you 10 times. You hit me once, I hit you until you are on the ground and you're not going to get up. The call, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is not that. It's actually meant to limit it. And now Jesus is looking and saying, hey, by the way, I want you to deal with even that desire to give retribution to the other person. And so he's calling them to this surpassing righteousness. 
In this example in 543 to 48, Jesus deals with this, what surpassing righteousness looks like in relation to our neighbors and our enemies. Jesus quotes a basic level of righteousness as taught and practiced by the scribes and Pharisees as loving our neighbor, neighbors and hating our enemies. The first part of the statement is a quote, of course. We all knew it from Leviticus 19.18, our favorite book in which we love to meditate and memorize and all these sort of things. And he just pulls it right out of there and he pulls that statement, love your neighbor as yourself and you will love your neighbor as yourself. While the second part reflects a general attitude towards our enemies. This is not a quote from the Old Testament. This is not an inference from the Old Testament. This is a statement of just how life works normally. We love those who are around us that we would call our friends, our associates, and all of these you know, sort of more positive things. But then when it comes to those who hate us, well, this is just the normal way that it goes, is we treat them in a pretty terrible way. And although this may be the basic level of righteousness as taught and practiced by the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus calls his disciples to a surpassing righteousness, commanding them to love even those who hate them and to pray for those who are persecuting them. That is to say that prayer is an expression of love. When we pray on behalf of other people, we're expressing love for them. What was once applied only to those who were friends is now being commanded even in relation to enemies who are actively act acting like it. Prayer, particularly intercession, is something that is certainly an expression of love on behalf of those, we, um, of those who are our friends. And I would say that this is something that we often enter into. These are the sort of prayers that we offer for one another on a regular basis. We hear in our small group, our, uh, in the context of the broader church, we hear about things and we pray for them because we love them and we care for them. Jesus is now commanding this type of love to be expressed even on behalf of an enemy who is actively pursuing or persecuting his disciples. When a disciple lives out this type of love, they become children of their heavenly father a father who loves in practical terms all people, cause, causing the sun to rise and sending rain on everyone, evil and good, righteous and unrighteous. And we oftentimes in theological terms, we call this common grace. This is God's kindness that is expressed to all people on a regular basis. And it's not dependent on how you performed in the course of the day. And God allows these things to move on. We have to recognize Genesis 1 does teach that God just has to speak and it's game over. And so the fact that these things continue, all things he sustains, uh, thinking in relation to Jesus in this prayer in Colossians chapter 1, that he's the one who is sustaining all things. When we express this sort of care in relation to others, when we express this sort of love in relation to others, we are actually emulating what we see in our Heavenly Father. Jesus notes that there is nothing out of the ordinary in loving those who love us because even tax, collects, tax collectors, this, that is the epitome of greed 
and unfairness in Jesus's time did the same. And so we think about the tax collector. Well, the big issue wasn't just that a tax collector collected tax. We may all hate that. The problem was is the tax collector really made their fortune off of getting more. So they would record that you paid the tax when you paid above and beyond. And so they keep for themselves some of that. And then they pass on what was supposed to go to the government. And so Jesus is giving the example, even this sort of person that's living the greediest of lifestyle, and go ahead and fill in the blank of whoever comes into your mind right now. Further, only greeting those who are ours, whether family, friends, or our people, is a normal practice among every nation. Jesus' closing command encapsulates the overarching goal for his disciples. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus' disciples love friends and enemies alike, they reflect the fully developed character of their heavenly Father. And it seems to be that that's what that, that issue of perfection is fully developed. This is mature. Uh, for those of us who are working with other people all the time, we know the immature response in us is when people lash out at us that we do the same thing back to them. Uh, thinking about any who have had teenagers that you've raised over the years. Teenagers are tyrants and they will say the most terrible things. But you know what's worse than that is when parents respond in the same way. Fully developed character looks different. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. So in this first mention of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus clearly identifies prayer as a key expression of love, not only for our friends, but our enemies as well. When we love those who hate and persecute us, we reflect our Heavenly Father demonstrating fully developed character. And just thinking, there's two verses at the end of here. In Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus is, he just speaks out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If there ever was an example of, of, of uh, persecution in that moment, it's our Savior in this terrible terrible situation, blood flowing down. 
And then we also see in Acts 7, 59 through 60, and this is the statement, Stephen has demonstrated clearly that he is full of God's spirit. He has demonstrated that he seemingly knows more about the scriptures than this group of experts, and they're now going to kill him because of his witness against them, because he, he will not be quiet in relation to Jesus. And it's in this moment as he is being struck by rocks to death, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And so we see in this first teaching in relation to prayer that Jesus is giving a very strong challenge. Certainly it has an ethical component to it, but it's the sort of thing that we are to practice in relation to those who actually hate us. Part of the ministry that I've done over the years is I worked with uh, refugees while we were in Austria. While I was in Austria, we moved there in 2001. And for any of you who were in that particular era of life, right around then, so uh, my daughter and I actually flew to get set up things to live in Austria. We landed on September 11th, 2001 in Austria, right after the first airplane had struck in New York. The second one struck while we were still in the airport. We just made it out. The whole thing was shut down. And when we left Austria about 10 days later, we entered into a whole new world. When we moved to Austria, and I took on this responsibility of leading an outreach to, um, to teenage refugees, and the countries that I primarily worked with in that period of time were from Afghanistan, uh, Chechnya, and if you don't know world politics, right around that same period of time, not only was the U.S. bombing uh, in the context of Afghanistan and doing all sorts of things in that particular region, but Russia was putting the beat down on Chechnya. And so we had all of these people from these two different uh, places, and sometimes I would sit across from the table from a young man or a young woman, and they would just simply speak to me and say, yeah, I'm here, none of my family has left, a bomb hit our house, a US bomb, they didn't know where I was from because I was usually speaking in German and going through a translator, and a US bomb hit my house and killed my entire family. And I'm sharing the gospel with them. Tough stuff. In the context of sharing the gospel in these strongly Muslim contexts, uh, the first time I heard these words was frightening. And that was because I was speaking the good news of Jesus to a group of Muslims and I was calling them to believe, the phrase came out, I'm going to drink your blood. Now, the challenge is in that context to then start to think very seriously about the work that you're doing and ask yourself, is this the sort of thing that the Lord would have you to do? And then when the answer is yes, then the question is, Lord, how do I respond to that? Now, oftentimes here, we, we are working in contexts where, you know, it might be rough. In, in some ways, people aren't very nice and, you know, they might say the F word to you. And, you know, whatever it might be, that's a little different than I'm going to drink your blood. 
And so you have to start thinking then, again, how do you respond in those contexts? Do you continue the work? Do you let it scare you off? Or do you look and say, no, this is exactly the sort of situation in which the Lord wants me to work and to continue to do the work, but then to move to the next place that now you are praying in a very serious way for people who actually desire to do bodily harm to you. And so the challenge from Jesus in this first teaching in relation to prayer is to demonstrate our love not only for one another, but also for those who are actively involved in the process of persecuting us. Our response as believers, as followers of Jesus, should be the natural place of moving to prayer and to praying on their behalf. Directly after the disciples, uh, or directly after, this is now moving into the next one, uh, 6, 1 to 18, Directly after commanding the disciples, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus continues to teach on how the disciples uh, or how the disciples righteousness is to surpass and be different than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus's concern in 6, 1 to 18 turns toward the three key expressions of righteousness among God's people. First one being charitable giving. That's the one that he goes after. That's the one that we're not talking about, and yet I am talking about it. Thinking about setting aside money for the purpose of helping those who are in need. Prayer, which is what we're moving to now, and fasting. The disciples' righteousness is to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees in these three practices by doing them for the right audience, namely our Heavenly Father instead of other people. If you skip over that first one, we'll just get right into starting in verse 5. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But I, if I... Uh, but if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so Jesus turns to the practice of prayer in 6, 5 to 15. In line with the overarching principle of not doing acts of righteousness to be seen by men, Jesus begins with the hypocritical example of prayer that picks the most public places to pray in the synagogues and on broad street corners for the purpose of being seen by others. 
And obviously, this is something we need to think about. This is Jesus' teaching. This is not Jordan's teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. An evaluation of the heart of when you pray and why you're praying. Because the hypocrite's true purpose is to be seen by others. They receive their reward in full from their audience. And as strange as it is, it seems at times you'll hear the phrase, oh, you know, somebody will stand up and do something. And then, you know, it's, 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 it's like it was a performance. And in some contexts, if you were to close your eyes and open them, you would think maybe they were a part of a Shakespeare play. Because their language actually changes when they move into their prayer mode. And all of a sudden, their voice that was one way, now it's as though they've entered into the theater. And I'm not saying that that necessarily means that their heart is in the wrong place, but somehow the way that they've been trained to pray, there's something that's gone wrong because they've been modeled by someone that this is a performance that you are now doing for other people to see. Similar to charitable giving, whenever the disciple prays, they are to pray in secret. This type of secret prayer is the type that our Heavenly Father will reward with the appropriate audience of prayer in view, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. When the disciples pray, they're not to babble, thinking that their heavenly Father will hear them due to their wordiness. There's no need to worry about being exhaustive, as though if something is missed, God will not hear our prayer. Our heavenly Father knows our real needs even before we ask for them. And this is a key issue sometimes for people as, as we're teaching them how to pray. We need them to understand, hey, you, you don't have to worry that if somehow you miss that real thing as you're you know, trying to express this before God. If you miss the real thing, God's not going to answer it because you didn't speak the right words. We're, we're not doing a magical incantation. Instead, we're bringing things before the Lord. And the idea would be here that through the babbling, through the many words, that God would somehow, some way, kind of like he's a, a cosmic genie, that if we just give enough words, that finally he will hear us. And Jesus looks and says, no, that's, that's not the way that it works. With this firmly in view, Jesus gives his disciples, um, disciples a model of how actually to pray. As has already been made clear, the prayer is not addressed to other people, but to our Father in heaven. And it's not that this is a completely foreign concept in the Old Testament. We have in the book of Malachi, in Malachi 2.10, don't we have one Father to all of us? Don't we have one God who has created us? So the idea of there being a heavenly Father was definitely there. But Jesus is now speaking of this intimacy, of this relationship that we as the disciples have with our heavenly father and not just to uh, address God as, oh, cosmic savior or only, oh, sovereign Lord, but instead to speak of this familial relationship. The next three petitions are focused on our father in heaven, on the one true God. 
The first petition is that God's name would be sanctified, a recognition that he is God, creator and sustainer of all things. And when we speak these things, as we, as we, as we put them out, we need to understand these are volitional statements. These are an expression of our desire in relation to God and his kingdom. These are the things that we want to see happen. We are even surrendering ourselves through this prayer to the Lord being hallowed here now in this moment. That this area in which we live, as we pray these things, that it would be uniquely set aside to him. The second petition is that God's kingdom would come. And that is to say where God's name is sanctified his kingdom is present. This is something volitionally that we are speaking in relation to God. We are looking actually in our circumstances. And as we ask for his kingdom to come, we are asking ourselves, how can we participate in that as an expression of our own desire as God reveals something? The third petition is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where God's name is sanctified and his kingdom is present, his will is done by his people. And so the first part of this prayer, very different than often our extemporaneous prayer, is to move in relation to God. And I, I'm sure many of you have sat through all sorts of prayer groups where you would think that the only thing that was important in the universe is uh, Fred's back surgery. And the fact that so-and-so, you know, has car trouble and all of these things. And not that any of that is bad, but Jesus is giving a model now that focuses in relation to God. Him being set aside in a unique way here in this place, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And so now, even as we pray these things, we are giving ourselves a filter and an orientation in, in, which, uh, in the world in which we live, where now we are looking and we are thinking and we are asking ourselves, how can we participate in this? How can we participate in the Lord's name being set aside in a unique way where we are? How can we see his kingdom come in a unique way? How can his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can we participate in that? And the following three petitions are focused on the disciples' needs. The first petition is that our Heavenly Father would provide the bread necessary for our existence today. And this is a statement that summarizes a request for all of our basic needs, food, shelter, and clothing. And so just even this idea that we're praying for our daily bread is the idea we're looking to God. And I have a feeling most of us in this room, probably the prayer that we need to pray right here is thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have provided in every way for us. We do recognize that the majority of the world is praying this not from the place of thankfulness, but from the sense of expectation. And give us today our daily bread. 
The second petition is that our Heavenly Father would forgive our debts. And it's interesting in parallel passages, it does use the term sins. It doesn't seem that Matthew is trying to do anything more than expand this and to get us to think there is a debt certainly in relation to sin, but there is even Matthew, tax collector, he's even thinking financially at this point. Certainly issues of of sin in our own lives, even the financial issues that we find ourselves in. It's not a bad thing, but certainly it's it's a broader net. A request which is clearly connected to our attitude toward and actually forgiving of our debtors. Jesus' repeated calling away from hypocritical practices is also applied to the disciples' request for God's forgiveness. That is to say, if we are looking to our Heavenly Father to forgive us, that we also should be extending that forgiveness to those around us. Surpassing righteousness looks not only to God as the forgiver, but also to us to respond because of His forgiveness of us, to forgive those around us. The third petition is that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, a request that reflects our natural propensity to lead ourselves into temptation, as well as the evil ones, the devil's clear desire to lead us into destructive temptation. And I know to many that seems like such a weird wording, lead us not into temptation as though God was going to lead us. And it seems to be that what's at issue here is the normal pattern of human activity is to walk as close as possible up to the line and just hope that we don't push ourselves over. And in this moment, as we pray this thing, it's now asking God, deliver, lead us not into temptation, that we not go over that line. And then just to say, yes, you could understand it simply as evil in this situation, but it does seem that it is even the evil one who wants to take us down. We live in a world that has basically tried to push away the spiritual dimension of the life that we live here and now. Uh, I have served 14 years in Portland, Oregon, working in a church that has all sorts of homeless issues all around us all the time. Massive drug abuse, absolutely wrecked families, all of these sorts of things. And when you look into some of these uh, very significantly dysfunctional situations, I have become convinced that it is demonic in orientation. And if we're just simply looking to solve the drug problem, which is a big deal, and we need to do everything in our power to help people get off of drugs, alcohol, the whole thing, regardless of what the world says, it destroys people. The wages of sin is death. We all know that that's eternal, that there are eternal things that weigh, but sometimes the wages of sin is death now here in this world. And to be praying on behalf 
of ourselves and other people. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. To even extend that to the people, oftentimes just praying, Lord, over and over, God, please pour out your spirit on this place, on these people. God, deliver us. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, please rescue us from the evil one. After this final petition in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus turns to the importance of forgiveness in the life of the, of the disciples. And our Heavenly Father forgives those who will in kind forgive others. However, for those who um, hypocritically call for their Heavenly Father to forgive their sins and at the same time not forgive others, our Heavenly Father will not forgive them. In other words, Forgiveness is a distinguishing mark of Jesus' disciples. It's not only something that we pray for our Heavenly Father to do for us, but something that we extend to others. I know that we all want to correct Jesus at this point. And I just have to say, don't create Jesus in your image. Let him speak to us. And I think that he is speaking to this core, core characteristic of being a believer. To follow Jesus at its core is living in this forgiveness. Now, Paul says it in, in, in a, a kind of a nicer way, still the same sort of issues going on there. Forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. Jesus is making it very, very clear in this instance and throughout the whole of the Sermon on the Mount that this is a key characteristic of God's people. In my own life, uh, having had a dad who bailed out on us simply just because he wanted to party. He didn't want to be with us anymore. And as I came to faith in Jesus, and, you know, obviously we all have our own issues and this sort of thing, this is one of those key things that the Lord speaks to me about on a regular basis to extend that sort of forgiveness. For my second dad, same issues, terrible, terrible home growing up. I, you know, for those of you who had, oh, I just, if I could go back and be a kid again, please, God, never. I don't ever want to go back but instead to extend that sort of forgiveness even to those folks who really do owe you in a very significant way. Why? Because it's a key characteristic of following Jesus. Because the King himself gave of his own body and blood on our behalf. Hey, I want to interrupt this episode real quick because I want to give a shout out to four of our key partners who will be leading track sessions at the National Disciple Making Forum coming up in Nashville, October 5th and 6th. Check out Awana for information on family discipleship at awana.org. Take a look at Mercy Multiplied for discipling women, especially women who need special support. Their website is mercymultiplied.com. Do you find yourself wanting to help in transitioning your church to a disciple-making focus? Then go to navigatorschurchministries.com for more resources. And lastly, should you need help with sustainable discipleship models, 
head on over to SustainableDiscipleship.com. I encourage you to join one of the track sessions that these organizations will lead at our forum. We want to thank Awana, Mercy Multiplied, Navigators Church Ministries, and Sustainable Discipleship for their support. All right, let's get back to the episode. In this second mention of prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, several issues are clear. First, the appropriate audience of prayer is our Heavenly Father. Second, wordiness is to be avoided uh, because our Heavenly Father uh, already knows what our needs are. And third, the Lord's Prayer gives us a model of simple prayer, focusing first on God and then on our basic needs. And fourth, forgiveness of others is a defining characteristic of Jesus's disciples. Moving to this next and last passage in this teaching that Jesus gives in relation to prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, or your Father in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is one passage that does not explicitly use the term prayer, but where Jesus is certainly teaching on prayer. And that's here in 7, 7 to 12. Directly after giving instruction on how to unhypocritically judge and correct others, that is first to take the beam out of your own eye before seeking to remove the speck, seems especially appropriate in our era right now. As we go to critique others, uh, check yourself first. And then he goes on and he speaks about, yeah, even then, once you've removed it and you see how it might work, really ask yourself, is it worth giving to them? How are they going to receive it? Maybe yes, maybe no. Jesus turns to the key issue of persistence. He emphasizes the importance of asking, seeking, and knocking because it is, it is exactly those who practice such things that receive an answer. This reflects standard practice among parents with their children, and in particular, he names off a, a father and a child. Who among you, being evil, when they come and they ask for you, you're going to give them some, here, here's a poisonous snake. Take that. Uh, of course, that's not the way it's going to be, even with the sinful reality of humanity. Jesus' key argument is that if this is how it naturally works among sinful humanity, namely persistent asking how much more, so should there be confidence that God, our Heavenly Father, will give good things to His children who ask Him. All of this culminates in the summary statement of the, of the Law and Prophets, treating others in a way you would want uh, to be treated. Persistence in prayer to our Heavenly Father is a key aspect of praying, constantly trusting that our Heavenly Father gives good things to His children who ask Him. The parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke comes directly after a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer. And on that final point, He says, and will even give the Holy Spirit 
Luke is the writer of that text. Luke is also the writer of the book of Acts. And notice, even if the word is not specifically used, the context usually has prayer implied in each of the places where God is doing something crazy and the spirit is being poured out on people as they gathered together at the beginning uh, on Pentecost together, the spirit is poured out. When the gospel goes among the Samaritans, they come and they pray, they lay hands on people, the spirit is poured out. Peter is called then, and notice it's Peter in each one of those places that he is opening first in Jerusalem, right? And then he starts to spread out Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where he comes to the ends of the earth. The centurion comes, Peter comes and speaks, and in that context, the Spirit is poured out on them. It seems that there's something of a persistence in prayer all sorts of things given in that context, but one of them does seem to be a unique outpouring of God's spirit on his people, persistence. In my own practice of prayer, um, I I just wanna say just a couple of things, but one was when I first came to faith and I had some issues, uh, a person I looked up to me, this is just in a short period of time, within months of coming to faith in Jesus, I was facing big issues. I went over to his house and he said, let's pray. And 45 minutes later, we finished praying. And that has set the tone of my life since that point forward as a 16-year-old. I knew that prayer wasn't something that just got a few minutes out of every day. I knew that it was something that you go to and you can bring all of these things before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, trusting the whole time that he hears those things. I like to talk about the concept of praying ourselves empty. We live in a society where there's pressure, there's all sorts of things around us. Yes, you should pray every day. It should be a part of your your quiet time. I think a quiet time is a great idea to spend time in scripture, prayer, every single day. It should be as long as you can allow in the course of the day. But there will be times where you don't need just a half an hour or 45 minutes where you need hours. And over the years, I've found places to be able to go and pray. I used to travel between the edge of Amsterdam and I would travel down to just on the edge of Brussels and go over to Leuven and I would teach a class at a university there. It was almost three and a half hours because of traffic in the morning. And the the Lord was gracious to me because it was in this period of time that my kids were going crazy and my handicapped daughter was having seizures that would cause cardiac and respiratory arrest. And the Lord gave me this precious gift of almost three and a half hours on the road. And I would spend almost that entire time in prayer. Everything that came to mind. We need those opportunities, those times to pray ourselves empty. And we need to pray about big things and little things alike. And we need to be persistent. One of the people that I looked up to in the Portland area, uh, he was, saw thousands of people come to faith over the years, in particular among kids. His oldest of his, his sons walked away from the Lord when he was a teenager. Uh, this particular man, Jim, who's gone to be with Jesus, uh, he, he blamed himself for it. He's too busy with ministry and everything else. He prayed for him every day for 40 years. Is that right? 50 Jim, his son, who was named after him, came to faith at 65 years old. 
persistence and prayer. One more. The church that was started that we worked at in Austria came as the result of one lady who persistently prayed that God would start something new in this particular region, and God answered that prayer. We need to be people who are practicing these things, but we need to be looking to Jesus' example. And I have left you guys precious little time, so. Um. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. Um, can we give him a round of applause? I had mentioned um, I am with PCM as a student, and the very first thing we did, uh, Tony Twist invited us in, and the first thing that we did is we got on our knees and we prayed for God to work uh, in our class, in our professors, in our hearts, that we would be open to the concept of, of praying. Later on, uh, my professor, David Roadcup, uh, who is really the expert in prayer, uh, he and I, uh, God put it upon my heart that uh, fasting, which I knew very little about, was something that was very important and it was intimately connected with prayer. It wasn't uh, uh, an if statement, but a when statement. And everything through scripture pointed towards this. So ultimately, long story short, uh, David and I were tasked with writing this book on prayer and fasting. It's a very practical guide, and we want to give this to you as a gift. Uh, TCM wants to give this to you as a gift uh, for being here today. And um, I'm just so grateful uh, that you're here, and I'm grateful for Jordan leading us through the, the important passages of Scripture. And so I'm going to let David talk to you because he's more of the prayer uh, expert. So. Thanks, Mike. It is wonderful to have you here in our session today, and uh, we are excited to be able to gift you with a copy of our book on prayer and fasting. Bobby uh, Harrington uh, contacted us probably about two years ago now and said uh, we would really love to launch a prayer fasting movement actually around the world is what we're going to do. We need a tool, so I'd like a book, uh, less than 100 pages, you know, because most of the people we'll be reaching out to are lay people, and uh, make it a shorter book, but uh, just pack it full of all kinds of practical things and things that would really help people figure out the discipline of prayer, and especially the discipline of fasting. Uh, we all know that uh, prayer is a struggle for us. You know, uh, in all of my Christian experience, I've never met one saint who said to me, you, you know, prayer, that, that, uh, that's a slam dunk for me. <laughs> uh, I've got that. Um, if you're struggling in your prayer life, here's what that means about your relationship to Christ. It means you're normal. You know, really enjoy the crowd, that's where you are. So what we wanted to do uh, was make this book as practical as we possibly could. You know, why do we struggle so much with prayer? Well, there are six reasons, six uh, uh, issues in developing a prayer life that are discussed in our prayer section. You know, in terms of the fasting section, we wanted to make it very, very practical. Um, in the uh, work that I do on, in a lot of churches all through the year, working with a lot of elders groups, a lot of ministers, and I'm very surprised, you all, seriously, the number of uh, primary leaders uh, who have never fasted and really and truly have shared with me, you know, I'm all for fasting. I, I don't know how to do it. I've never fasted, and I'm not sure where to begin. So uh, Mike did a great job in putting together, you know, if you want to really begin preaching and teaching on fasting and modeling it yourself, uh, this isn't the only model, but we want to give you a model 
and just just go step by step as this book describes and, and it will help you get started and then of course this is a primer so you'll be expanding beyond this and really growing in your whole uh, your whole uh, prayer and fasting area uh, brothers and sisters with all of my heart i really believe that the two great engines of the church that will take us to revival someday across our country i really believe are the disciplines of prayer and fasting and i would really add to that obedience and humility those are the other four other two pieces of the four-legged stool we need and really a pleading with God to save our country, to come into our country and literally see millions of people come to Christ through a movement of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me just mention also that we have um, a wonderful school in Vienna, Austria. It is very close to Vienna. We have 1,700 students there and 55 different countries. And we're thrilled to be able to partner with discipleship.org in starting a prayer movement literally around the world. We already have representatives in those countries you know, who, will, who will help us with this. And this is kind of a tool that we'll be using uh, in all kinds of different places to really ask God to visit us uh, through prayer, the prayer and fasting we're going to do. If you uh, have a bachelor's degree and uh, you would like to take a step up in terms of a master's degree in leadership organization, uh, that's basically what we do. We have several different kinds of master's degrees. Our whole focus is simply helping men and women, training men and women, and how to effectively serve the body of Christ, mainly uh, through discipling more than anything else. We would love to have you stop by our booth, which is right outside here, just to your right, and talk to us about becoming a graduate student in our school because we now have brought TCM to the United States as well. And uh, you can, uh, it's, it's geared for people who work full time, have families and our delivery system is set up to help you take ministry classes that would really prepare you for effective ministry so we invite you to do that as well thank you so much for coming today really hope this has been a good time for you we have two more sessions uh, that following in this track we'd love to have you come and join us and a big big thank you uh, to our speaker today who is uh, doing an excellent job in these areas so much thank you god bless you you're dismissed Thank you so much for listening. Up next, we've got another TCM episode from another one of their track sessions. And I want to say just before I sign off here to check out TCMI.org. And I would love, love, love it if you would go on over to discipleship.org and buy your tickets for the forum, which is rapidly approaching. All right, y'all. I'll catch you on the next episode. See ya.